This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, guys. Uh, my name is Jeff Heiser. I'm the assistant pastor here at Trinity. It's so good to be with you guys worshiping today and studying God's Word together. Um, today we're going to be in Psalm 126, and this is actually the last psalm in our, ser- on our, in our series on the psalms that we've been going through this summer. So um, this is the last one. We're going to start in a couple weeks the book of Acts, so that'll be really exciting. We're really looking forward to that. One of the first things you'll notice as you turn to Psalm 126 in your Bibles is that, is that it has a heading that says, A Song of Ascents. And uh, Ronnie mentioned this last week, but Psalm 126 is part of a collection of 15 psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. And um, so Jerusalem was on the top of a hill, the top of a mountain, and kind of the the, the land around it sloped down um, into the plains of Israel. And so as um, every year, the people of Israel, they they would go to Jerusalem to worship God and to sacrifice at the temple, and they would be going uphill as they did that uphill towards Jerusalem. And so they would be ascending, and these psalms, these 15 psalms particularly, were the psalms that they would sing as they walked up that road. And I was trying to think about what it would be like on those roads leading up to Jerusalem um, uh, in those days. And, and, you know, they were going to a festival, like a celebration, like this is a big moment for them every year. And so I kind of imagine them walking the road, and as they get closer and closer, of course, more and more people are showing up on the road. It's getting more and more packed, and kind of there's this at- atmosphere of anticipation. It's kind of charged, right, kind of electric, and, and everyone's kind of getting excited as they get closer and closer, and then somebody starts singing, and it's just like everyone knows the song. And it just, the whole road is like, it's just, it's electric, right? And it's kind of, I don't know, it, to me it's kind of like um, a scene in Remember the Titans or like another sports movie, you know, where they're all in the bus, like the, they're going to the game or they're in the locker room about to run on the field. And it's like, they're all just like jacked up. They're just pumped. And they start singing, you know, ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough. You guys know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's just like this huge, like awesome emotional moment and they're, they're ready to go. And I, I think that's kind of what it was like as they walked up those hills and sang these songs. Um, but one thing you'll find is that not all of these psalms are super joyful. Like some of them, um, and Psalm 126 is one of these, where it, it kind of has these deep undercurrents of pain. And that's actually one of the things that makes it so powerful and so beautiful. Um, you know, my, my wife is an English teacher, and one of the things that she'll tell you from her study of literature and her teaching of literature to students is that an extraordinarily large portion of the best American literature is written by African Americans. Like, African Americans write the best American literature. And do you know why? Well, there's a lot of reasons why, but one of them is that there is a pain and, and inju- like there's a pain in the community of African Americans from the injustices and oppression of their past and their present that like it creates this fertile ground for beautiful art to grow. And and we kind of see that in Psalm 126 is there is this pain and it and it's and it's this fertile ground where this beautiful psalm can grow, this beautiful artwork and 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 it. And, and we, we see it and we read it and it, is, it touches us because we know some 
of what's going on. Like we know this pain, we know the pain of life to some extent. Now, if you can think of sadness um, and pain kind of on a continuum of intensity, right? You have like on one side, you have maybe regret, like, oh, you know, you missed out on something. You wish you had done something that you didn't. Well, then if you continue on, like you, you have, okay, maybe sadness. It's a more intense feel, like feeling of real loss. There's a sense of emptiness, a, of like a real deep sadness. And then if you, kind of the more intense sadness would lead, be, maybe be depression, right? A sense of hopelessness, an emptiness of life. A sense like maybe things, it's kind of all-consuming, right? And then beyond depression, you have despair, right? And you kind of have this continuum of, of sadness, like, and we all live part, lots of our lives, or at least parts of our lives, somewhere on that, on that, um, that range, in the, within that range. And this psalm is divided into uh, kind of two sections, verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 6. And on, on two, the two sides, you have these shouts of joy and God redeeming, restoring the fortunes of Israel. It seems so great. And you, think of these, you can think of these two sides as kind of mountaintops of joy, right? They're kind of the mountaintops. But the reality is, is that the psalmist and those who are singing it, and even we today, we kind of live in the valley in between those two mountaintops. And in that valley, that valley is defined by, so often by pain, by regret, by sadness, by depression, by despair. Right? We live in the present. And that valley is so often filled with pain. Well, how do we live in that valley without giving in despair? And this psalm offers us hope. It offers us, like, it tells us, like, what is the stuff? Like, what is the material? Like, the foundation of hope? What is it? And what we'll find is that it's memory. Now, memory is part of the skill of the Christian faith. But it's a skill that we don't actually train all that often. We kind of let it lapse, right, and atrophy. But this psalm will train you if you let it, and it will comfort you um, if you're living somewhere in, the, that, in that valley, if you're living somewhere in the continuum of pain between regret and despair, like if you're somewhere in there, it will comfort you. Or if you're not, it will train you for the day that you are, and it will prepare you for that day if you'll let it. So that's what we're um, going to be looking at today. And we, um, I have two points. My two points are memory and hope. And so be thinking like verses 1 through 3 is memory, verses 4 through 6 is hope. But let's go ahead and read Psalm 126. If you would, please stand with me um, out of reverence to God's Word. And we're going to read Psalm 126. There's only six verses. Hear now the reading of God's very Word. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is, the, this is God's good word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will abide forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. My first, we're going to first look at memory. And I have this you know, our lives are so full of memories. I have this very distinct memory um, from the 90s. 
of my parents, my grandparents, my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary. And we all had gathered in, uh, I think in Georgia, and all my cousins and aunts were, and uncles were all lining up to take this picture, this group picture. And there were like 40 of us, and we're all like trying to get organized and everything, and we sit and we take the picture, and we took like two to three pictures max, and that's it. Like just one, two, three, that's it. You know, and of course, that's the day of film, cam- film cameras, and I, I kind of miss that a little bit. I know, like, I can't, like, I hit the button like 50 times. I have 50 pictures of every single moment in my life. And, you know, kind of in nostalgia, maybe, I decided at the beginning of quarantine to go through my pictures and delete all the duplicates and the, like, thousands of photos I have of every single situation, pare them down to two or three for that each moment, you know? And as I'm going through my pictures, I don't know if you guys have done this, like spend a couple hours reliving your, your, sto- your past through your pictures. And it kind of hits me in a couple ways. One is like this deep nostalgia. Like I'm, I like getting nostalgic, people. Like the, like the pain, like the loss of the past is like, it's painful. Like it's really painful for me. I can kind of get into a little funk for, like I get really nostalgic and definitely that happened when I was going through these pictures. But there was another side where I started to look at um, some of Cecilia and I's pictures, like some of our first pictures together when we were dating and um, when, you know, our, our favorite Greek restaurant in Nashville, Tennessee, or like our, the day we had this huge snow and, you know, we all, it was so fun. And, or our wedding or the first little house that we had where it, like deer would come into our backyard. Like these three bucks would just show up in our backyard all the time. It was our first little house. It was so fun. And I start to look at those pictures, and it, definitely I'm feeling nostalgia, but what also happens to me is I like, I find, I'm like so drawn to Cecilia and love, right? It's just like, man, these, these memories just reawaken this love that I have for Cecilia, my wife. Like, it's just, it's intense, right? The, those memories are actually shaping who I am and how I act in the present, right? And so, when we talk about our memories shaping our faith, we're not talking about nostalgia or like our ability to remember facts or something. I'm talking about the memories that actually shape our lives and shape our presence, that shape our imaginations. You know, it's really interesting. If you turn to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is like Moses' last words to Israel before, on his deathbed. He's, he knows he is dying, and he's like, I got to say one more thing. And some of Moses' last words are... You, do not forget. Do not forget what God did for you when he saved you from the Egyptians and kept you safe in the wilderness. Do not forget your memories of what God did and the mem- that what you tell your children and your children's children. Like Those things have to shape your self-understanding. And if they don't, it's going to go really, really bad for you. Right? Moses knew they must remember And that's exactly what's happening in Psalm 126, is they're saying, remember, remember what God did. When God, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those in the dream. This is all past tense. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, like 
The psalm was probably written and sung very likely after Israel returned from exile. Do you guys remember the exile? Like Babylon came and conquered Israel and they took everyone out, you know, took, stole, their, stole them from their homes, took them to um, Babylon for 70 years. And then you have in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah like this really unlikely and miraculous series of events that ends up with people like Zerubbabel, do you guys know that? Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, these, these guys are leading Israel back to Israel, leading the people back to Israel, and they're rebuilding the temple and re, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And the psalm says that we were like those in a dream. A dream. It's, it's this idea that like, it was so wonderful, like so unlikely, so miraculous that we didn't, we, all, we were like pinching ourselves. We couldn't believe it was really happening. It was so shocking and so un- unlikely. The Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, his pe- right? That's his people. It's Jerusalem, the temple. And, 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 and their joy was so great that even the pagan nations, this is looking at verse 2, even the pagan nations were like, oh my word, what is happening? The Lord has done great things for those people. Right? That is the mountaintop of joy. Right? Brought about by the, by the redemptive acts of God. That's like what they're reflecting on. Right? And look at verse 3. It says, the Lord has done great for, things for us. We are glad. Do you see that present tense there? that we are glad. Today, we are glad for what God has done. Their memory is shaping who they are in the present. Their history informs their lives, and they sing about it, and they reflect on it. It shapes who they are in their present. It shapes who they are today. Now, we all have experienced Many of us, most of us, I'd say, have experienced moments of God's generosity and goodness to us in ways that we did not expect. You know, Cecilia and I, um, a big kind of example of this in our life is how we were cared for after Hurricane Maria. Like, the, the generosity and prayer and love that we felt after Hurricane Maria, was a testimony to us of God's goodness to us. Right? We, we have, most of us have similar experiences of this, and these are like little mountaintops, right? Little hills that, where we see, where we experience joy and we see God's goodness. And those little, little mountaintops need to be the stories that we tell ourselves and our children about, like the stories that define who we are as a family. Right? Usually we just complain to our kids and are like cynical and gossip and whatnot, but we need to actually have our families defined by the stories of God's goodness. That's what this psalm is calling us to. This is the example it's setting for us. But, but why do we need to do that? Because it's one thing to just say, well, you need to do it, but why? Why? And this is actually where hope kind of comes into the story. Um, a theologian named Derek Kidner. This is what he says about Psalm 126. He says that well, Psalm 126, miracles of the past, it bids us, it tells us to treat as measures of the future. Okay, this is what he's saying. He's saying the things of the miracles of the past, 
Like that is where we find our hope for what God will do in the future, right? What God has done in the past, He will do in the future. That is what is happening in Psalm 126. It's our memories of, their, of the past. It is our memories of the past that will shape our hope for the future. You could put it this way, that hope has a history. Hope has a history. It's actually our memories of God's goodness that give us the means to hope. And it's our hope that actually allows us to live in those valleys without giving into despair. Let me, let, me, let me ask you this question, and it's not a, it's not, this is not a trick question. Why do we have the Bible? Just generally, like, why do we have the Bible? Well, of course, there's a lot of reasons. But you know the Bible is, God's, um, is a record of God's acts in history. Like, the Bible tells us what God has done, Right? If, if hope has a history, this is the history of the Christian faith. This is the history of even the world, the whole world. The Bible, in a sense, creates like a national memory for God's people. I mean, there, there are other reasons why we have the Bible. It teaches us to love God. It teaches us to obey Him. It teaches us who He is. But it also shapes our memories. It shapes our national memory, our stories. It shapes our history. We know what God will do because of what he has done in the past that we read about in the Bible. Like, that's one of the reasons why we have the Bible. And this, of course, is why we need to know our Old Testaments, because Israel's history is our history, and it shapes how we act and how, how we, who we understand ourselves to be. So, with that in mind, let's look at our New Testament reading again. And this is why I picked this passage for our New Testament reading. John the Baptist, right, sends someone to ask Jesus if he is the Messiah, the Christ. And Jesus, what does he do? Well, he starts healing people. He, he says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Do you know what this means? This means that wherever you are on that spectrum of, of pain and sadness, or like regret, despair, depression, wherever you are, you know, you can find hope in the work and the life of Jesus on this earth. What he did can bring you hope in the midst of intense pain. What did Jesus do? He healed the hurting. He cared for the, the lonely he gave sight to the blind. That is what Jesus did. And if we're treating the act, God's acts in the past of the measure, as the measure of what he will do in the future, what does that say? It says that what Jesus did, God will again do in the future. Hope has a history. And this is, the, this is our history. Now we live in the space between verses 3 and 4. We live in the present. And we live in this valley, the valley between God's acts of, of joy bringing redemption, right? We live between Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and his, and his coming again when all these things will be finally made true. And it's actually, 
um, a future redemption that Psalm 126 has in mind. And we're going to look at um, uh, verses 4 through 6. And these are, this is my second point, hope. So memory, hope. Like why, what does it look like to hope? Look with me. Let's read again verses 4 through 6. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Right? He's, he's repeating those words from verse 1. Right? He's saying, do in the future what you did do in the past. Right? So, Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Like streams in the Negev, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seeds for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And I just want to make a couple observations about these verses. Um, here's the first. In verse 4, um, this is what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, God, we have seen you do things that are impossible by human standards. And we need you to do something like that again. You need to do it because we cannot. This is what's going on. The psalmist is calling us to really trust that God is in control. To really trust that God is in control. And here's why that's important, because when we place our hope, like our vision, our hope for a better future, right? Our hope for change, our hope for... When we place our hope in our ability to make our lives work the way that we want them to work, if that is the basis of our hope and it doesn't work, like, that is a, like a, a cycle that will just lead to despair. Because if our hope is in ourselves and we can't do it, where, is, where will hope come from? It'll destroy our hope, any sense of hope. It's a recipe for despair. And I think we know this from experience, although I think sometimes we have a hard time recognizing it in our experience. And so I want to help us do that a little bit. This is something um, that I'm like reflecting on in my own life is um, how do we know where our hope is? Well, first of all, we can think about our level of anxiety. Now, there are reasons for anxiety, many reasons for, you know, multiple reasons for anxiety. But what if your anxiety is even your body's way of saying, listen, you cannot be in control of everything. And when you try to do it, it is overwhelming, like, what if, that's, what if your, your body is actually trying to tell you something? Like, trying to correct you, trying to say, you need your hope in something other than your ability to control your life. It's not going to work. Or how about this? Um, how much time do you guys do, 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 I mean, we, honestly, how, as a culture, how much time do we spend entertaining ourselves? How much time do we find, spend entertaining ourselves? You know, I, I, a couple weeks ago, I heard that, um, like, everyone wants to get, like, buy an NFL team. Like, people want to buy NFL teams, if they have the means, of course. I mean, it's not, you know, whatever. Uh, out of touch, out of reach for most people, of course. But everyone wants to buy an NFL team because they only grow in value. Like, they, they only expand. It's just more and more and more and more people are participating and watching the NFL and other sport. Every, the entertainment industry continues to explode. Why is that? Well, maybe, you know, maybe we're laughing to keep from crying. <laughs> maybe, like, we're trying to manufacture joy, and it's not working, and so we have to, like, push it further and further and further and further, and it just it continues to not work. Maybe we're looking in the wrong places for joy, and it's letting us down, but we're, we're 
like kind of buckling down. We're doing, trying it again, right? Trying again and again and again. It's like, this is brave new world kind of stuff. Like, it, this could go dystopian real fast, right? It's not, it's not good. What if we're finding, trying to find our joy? We're trying to force ourselves into joy in the wrong place. Well, what can we do? Well, this psalm says, stop hoping in yourself. Stop hoping in yourself. Turn your life and your future over to a God who has acted faithfully in history and who will act faithfully again in the future. The journey of life like, can be lived from a place of rest. It, really, it can. Rest that, that opens the door for the light of joy to shine through. You can live a life of rest. But what that's going to take is the collapse of your self-will. Like hoping, is collapse of hoping in yourself. It's going to allow you, it's going to take you allowing God to complete His works, His works in your life and in the world. Okay? All right, second observation. There are two ways in which the psalmist envisions God completing His work. The first is this. It says like streams in the Negev. The Negev is the southern part of Judah. And it is a desert. But throughout the years, over you know, centuries and millennia, the, the wind and occasional rains have kind of cut these riverbeds through the landscape. And when it does rain, very rarely, those riverbeds fill up immediately with water. And it soaks the riverbeds. And in those riverbeds, life just explodes. You know, seeds that have been dormant for months or maybe even years, I don't know, you know, just explode to life. And it's this vision of death to life. Like, there is, there, it, where it is barren, life has come. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, like, there are times when God's goodness will shine, like, brightly, almost out of nowhere. Right? Like, those are, like, just these sweet moments of joy, and God does do that at times. But I would say that that's probably not the norm. And this is like my, the second, um, second way in which God envi- uh, the psalmist envisions God completing his work. Is, um, do you, it's found in verses 5 and 6. Do you see that like repeating language of sowing and weeping and then contrasting with reaping and joy? And You see that? Like that's language of work. Like they're far- Israel's, they're farmers, right? So this is the language of work. And this is what Psalm 126 is saying. Although we cannot complete the redemptive works of God, like God must do, his, what he must, like he has to complete the, his redemptive works. We cannot. Like we can't manufacture the mountaintop. He has to do it. Even though we, can, we cannot do it, we get to play a part. That's what he's saying. Like we get to participate. We get to work towards, we need to get to work towards the mountaintop, although we cannot finally accomplish it. God will do it, but we are allowed to participate, even as we live in the sadness of this life, and honestly, maybe particularly when we're living in the sadness of this life. And I know we've said this before, and, and maybe it's a little bit cheesy, honestly, but it's really worth reminding ourselves. This is something that I learned from Ronnie many years ago. Your mess is your message. Your mess is your message. You know what that means? That means that the painful parts of your story, 
right? It's the times of your life when you have walked in the valley, somewhere, you know, in sadness, maybe um, even depression or even despair. Like, those are the times at which your testimony to your hope in God is at its most powerful. Your mess is your message. God can use you in the valley, and maybe He wants to particularly use you in the valley. You know, God has chosen to use us, His poor, weak, and fragile people, to participate in His kingdom, to participate in the final redemption that He started 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again from the dead. We participate in bringing about the kingdom of God. All right, let me close with this. Um, I really want you guys to find comfort in Jesus' ministry. Um, and, but, but, but I'm not trying to say that like, the miracles of Jesus' ministry are going to happen to you in this life. Like, that is not what I'm saying. Like, you, Jesus healed the paralyzed man. You might become paralyzed and die paralyzed. Right? There, this, is, this is not a promise that Jesus is going to miraculously heal all of your wounds and pains. So don't, he, don't hear what I'm not saying. That is not the case. But this is what I want to comfort you. What, what Jesus did in his ministry is merely a foretaste of what is to come. When he, when he comes again and he, and he completes and he consummates everything that he began in his life on this earth. You know, every story that we tell our ch- ourselves and our children, every, maybe it's this moment in our, fam- like our particular family's history where we experience God's mercy and grace, or maybe it's the, the broader like, national story of our faith, of what God has done for his people and the beauty and majesty and goodness of it. Those things are, are only a taste of what is to come when Jesus comes back and completes all that he promised. And what that means is just like the Israelites, Israelites who sang this song as they were headed, they walked up to the city of God and up to his temple, hopeful that God would bring about their restoration. So we, as the people of God today, we look up at the joy that is to come. Right? There's a mountaintop that is promised to us that we have not experienced yet on this earth. And we look up to that mountaintop and we have hope in this life because we know that what God has done in history, he will, he will complete in the future. That's what Psalm 126 is about. And if you turn to the book of Revelation, the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, you will see a vision of what that mountaintop will look like. You see, Jesus came to, to heal, to wipe away the tears of the sad. To, to make the lame walk, to heal, um, to, to make the blind see. And this is what it says in Revelation 21, the mountaintop that is to come. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. There shall be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. That is where we are going. Complete, total joy. That which Jesus has began, what Jesus began has truly and finally come. Amen.